I was sort of lucky in a way, right? Because I think I caught the last of that era where you could be a market maker in a bank and take significant risk. I grew up around really solid risk managers, people who really understood what it meant to take risk and trade and punt. And so um, an old boss of mine, he refers to me as a calculated cowboy. You know, he said, you calculate things and you look at the odds, but you don't need to know everything. Like you're prepared to make a jump if you have to. And so my career after FX, uh, you know, I made a sort of calculated cowboy move into precious metals and metals trading generally, which back then was more of a wild west than probably FX was. And then, you know, subsequently, obviously, I've ended up in crypto. I like those markets where it's a bit less developed. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Weising, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I've got a great guest. He is right up my alley. He is a former Wall Street trader who has moved into crypto and is creating um, a decentralized exchange called Vertex. His name is Darius Tabatabai, and he grew up in Wales, the son of pub owners uh, who played rugby uh, as a kid and soon learned that he had mind for numbers and for uh, statistics and a love of math that helped him do really well in betting situations. Uh, His dad also was instrumental in kind of helping him in understanding the odds of what was, uh, you know, before him in games of chance. So we talked about the financial crisis when he was at UBS. Uh, He was, uh, before that, uh, he traded currencies and precious metals at Credit Suisse. We talked about going through the financial crisis there inside a Wall Street bank. Uh, we talked about his stand-up career uh, as a comedian in London. And we talked about what he's doing with Vertex, uh, which is, like I said, a decentralized exchange. So there's no centralized authority there like Binance or uh, Coinbase. And Vertex is built on the Arbitum uh, layer two on Ethereum. And it is uh, structured as a central limit order book, which is a different path that Vertex is taking from a usual DEX, which is they use automated market making pools where you've got a pair of coins and you have people that are responsible for keeping the liquidity of those coins in the pool. With a market maker and a central limit order book set up, you've got people who are dedicated to making prices on both sides of the market. It's more of something you see in traditional finance uh, rather than some of the DEXs um, like Uniswap that have come up in the last couple of years. So I found that really interesting. With all that being said, let's get to the conversation. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Darius, thanks so much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah. Um, so you are the co-founder of Vertex Protocol, which is a decentralized uh, exchange um, in the Ethereum world on the Arbidum, um layer two. Um, we're going to get into that, um, but uh, looking over your background and everything, I am going to make the guess that you're British. Am I? Am I in the? Uh, am I in the right? Or, uh, close correct, enough? Here? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I'm <laughs> half. I'm half Welsh, half Iranian. Oh wow. And but grew up in the UK somewhere. I grew up in the UK. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, what part of the country were you in? I grew up in Wales. Yeah. Oh, so great. Um, it's like 
is a bit like what's the equivalent for the US? It's a bit like growing up in like backwards Jeez. Pennsylvania or something. Yeah, maybe Wisconsin or something. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of, we got lots of sheep in Wales. That's the yes. cultural joke. Yeah, um, where the, the yeah the men are men and sheep are scared. Or is that Australia? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that fits very well. Yeah, yeah, you got you got the tone of it. I um. I watched a rugby game for about 15 minutes once when I was in Europe and it was in Welsh and I, I thought, I thought it was in English and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to understand this eventually. And then finally <laughs> I realized it was in Welsh and, uh, but it's to the ear, it's, it's sort of like English. Would you say that's, that's true? Uh, I'm, I'm going to be a bad, uh, podcast guest and say, no, yeah, <laughs> not, not at even, all. Not even it's more, it's like a Gaelic language. So it's more related to like Gaelic in Scotland or Catalan or okay. Irish. Yeah. What, um, what's it like growing up in Wales? Was it, were you in a rural part or in one of the cities? Um, I was born in the capital and then, um, my parents moved and I grew up in kind of boarding school which was sort of in the countryside so it's kind of a mix of different things yeah okay cool um is turf turf more the this the soccer stadium that's in wales uh is i that, don't know you know uh, better than i okay i thought i can't remember the team name but there is a welsh team that's in the premier league um and i think it's you're really finding me out immediately you got all the shit <laughs> well, yeah well um yeah, we'll just talk about your favorite pub next, and then we'll yeah, pretty exactly. much be done. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Yeah. What? Um. What? So, what was it like? You so you had sort of a bit of a, r a rural um, time, and then some city life as well. Growing yeah, up. Yeah, it's a bit weird because um, my parents ran, um, kind of a, a small pub in the inner city in Cardiff, and then. I got a scholarship to this uh, very fancy school. So I would go to this fancy school that was in the countryside. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would go home in holidays and weekends and be in a tiny pub in the city center. So it's just a very different like back and forth, yeah. Yeah. Wow, so you kind of grew up in a pub, but you're not a soccer fan. That's No, I, that's I grew amazing. up playing rugby. Okay. Um, so just, yeah, rugby, rugby, rugby. I played quite a high level of rugby as a kid and then um, played a lot at uni. And when I traveled around with work, you know, I played all around Asia, Europe, UK. Okay. Yeah. Right on. Um, that is one thing I don't know anything about. So <laughs> rugby, uh, I've watched it a few times, but man, yeah, uh, not, not my thing. Um, yeah. I was wondering, um, so did you you mentioned you got a scholarship were, were you always good in school what was there a direction you found yourself headed in early on or were you just uh, what, what was that like for you so i was pretty good at school um quite an all-rounder but uh maths and hard sciences was probably where i was most specialized so funnily enough when i first applied for school um i actually failed one of the tests yeah. but i maxed out on the maths and They'd not had that happen before, so they just pulled me in for an interview to find out what was going on. And, uh, you know, my mum basically had put me in for this exam like three days before. I had no idea. Someone mm. had just su suggested to her it would be a good idea. So was there and like so an I English not... language part of it or like, you know, reading comp? Is that the part you failed or? No, it was like this weird logic test. 
Uh, okay. okay. And so it was one of those things that if you've done a lot of task prep, you'd do well on. And if you've not, you'd fail. Oh. And so they pulled me in and they were like, what's up with this kid that he just failed this? And my mum explained and they said, oh, right, okay, interesting. And <laughs> kind of went from there. And they, well, wait, they now, how did your mom, how did your mom explain to you to them? What was it that she unlocked? My mum was a very plain speaking lady. Uh, God bless her soul. So she, she just was very honest. She said, well, I don't know. We've never seen anything like this. He's top of class normally. And the, she said, how did he do on the other test? They said, well, he got full marks in maths. We can understand why he didn't understand this. Uh, and she's like, oh, he's never seen one before. And they were like, oh, <laughs> most kids prepare for this for like a year. You know that. She's like, oh, no, I told him on Wednesday. They're like, okay, no problem. <laughs> Bring him in. That's so, great. yeah, it's one of those, yeah. That's great. So was that, I don't know, was it computer science or what were you thinking at that point? Or were you, uh, I know you, you ended up in finance and we'll talk about that, but um, had that come on the radar yet? Uh, so funnily enough, my dad was quite forward thinking. So my dad trained as an engineer. So even though he ran pubs, he trained as a civil engineer like in the 70s. So he was like very early had exposure to things like programming in Fortran. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like sure. a very early programming very language. Old. Yeah, computer language. Yeah. And so when I was quite young, I had this sort of uh, facility with maths. My dad bought me a couple of different computers. There was one was like a BBC Acorn and then uh, something really shitty was called a Commodore 64. I don't know if you remember those. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. And then... Um, I, he sort of taught me how to code. Um, and so like I learned some basic stuff, like how do you do a for loop? How do you do if then? How do you, you know, and there used to be like, you know, loop back to line 100, blah, blah, blah. And I did some stuff like programming, trying to program my own computer games and stuff. But I can't say that it was something I was obsessed with, but it it taught me enough that, I kind of learned how to think in that way. And so like when I got older, um, I didn't really have much interest, to be honest. I was much more interested in maths and stats. And I got really interested in games. Like I fucking love playing games. So board games, games of chance, card games, anything like that. I'm just obsessive. And um, basically, I went to university um, to do politics and economics. I just sort of decided I want to do something a bit broader than just pure math. Did the math brain that you have sort of help with the games in terms of like, you understood the statistical side of things or, you know, like what are my chances here or, you know, like that sort of thinking? Is it? Yeah, that... 100%. 100%. Like I can remember my dad and explaining to me how the probability around two dice worked when I was about seven. So, you, you know, drawing a matrix and saying, you know, what's the most likely number? And it's a good him saying, <laughs> well, you know, my dad is really an unusual guy. Like, he's really an engineer, right? Other than a, he, he's, yeah, he's a very weird dude to explain. But, um, <laughs> you know, he used to bet with me, you know, like mm. we'd gamble or he, he'd give me odds on my pocket money. So he'd give me pocket money, but then we'd have to gamble on dice or cards or whatever. And he'd he'd always put a slight edge in the game. Uh -huh. So there was a chance to do well, but I had to bet appropriately and guess what he'd messed around with. 
like figure it out. That's like and one so of the was, best metaphors I've ever heard for somebody who became a Wall Street trader. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I like, kind of <laughs> you couldn't come up with a better kind of like early experience or formative, I think, experience than than that uh, to end up on the street because that's exactly what they're doing, right? Yeah. So it it is a very very good mentality to take into trading. You know, like a lot of people think trading's gambling you know, most professional trading is really card counting or running the casino, yeah. right? That's really what it is. I've never and liked so the gambling like, analogy myself. It's it's so much more than that. Um, but yeah, yeah go, go on. Yeah, so I I did a lot of that. And then my dad had a, <laughs> my dad had a friend and his friend was a man called Mansur Matlubi. Mansur um, was a world poker champion in the okay. early 90s. Um, he's like an amazing backgammon player and my dad had been exposed to Mansoor and so I think I think some of being friends with Mansoor influenced my dad and so hence he did these things with me and messed around because he thought it was good for my maths Mm -hmm. and then fast forward say 10 years I go to university and I was at university at London School of Economics um, and I was doing a lot of gambling like sports betting mm-hmm. um basically it's really still not exists. in soccer i can't believe this how is this <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> you're like adjacent to it in all parts of your life but it's like no fuck, <laughs> fuck that i'm not gonna get yeah. into it <laughs> that's pretty much it yeah but i used to do like obscure spread betting so you could bet on like points so they'd say like you know um we we put the market for England sure. versus France rugby five over. You can buy at five a point. And then every point you make, you make more money, right? So it's basically trading on sports. Yeah. But then I'd go and find these like weird markets that they'd misprice. So they do like probabilistic bid offer around a mean where what they should have been pricing to was wings. Uh-huh. And so you could guess something like a, an example was there used to be a thing on snooker where you could bet on overall points in a match. Mm-hmm. And they'd calculate the price of that according to average outcome for a difference between the two players. So make that simple. They'd say, okay, normally this guy wins by like 10 points a frame and he's better odds than this guy. And this, you know, he should win by five frames. So it'd be 50 points. But actually what would happen is they'd win by like a hundred points a frame and they'd win every frame. So they'd win like by a thousand points. So I'd just go and bet like one pound a point because it was like a, it was a lock. And I got thrown off a few gambling platforms and I was about 20 for making too much uh, money. You're not supposed to figure that out, are you? <laughs> you're not supposed to figure it out. So they like chuck you off. Yeah. And then... I was moaning about it to a friend I played rugby with and he was like, you know, you seem pretty like tuned into this stuff. Have you ever done any trading? And I'd, I'd actually done a bit of options trading when I was at school. So I used to buy options on, um, IPOs. This was in like height of the nineties when tech boom was happening. Yeah. So you could buy call options on like Nokia's IPO. Um, and I'm like, you know, it's a lot of money for a 16 year old kid. I made about 35 grand. Wow. Good job. And yeah. And then I lost it all. 
was your dad was your dad investing this for you or how are you getting access to this no i had a charles schwab account i just invest online oh yeah they didn't know yeah, you were 16. <laughs> no um right. i and That's uh awesome. i never told my parents yeah it was kind of crazy i basically used to work for my dad at about a thousand pounds seed i started with oh, wow. worked it up to about 25 30 grand and then i lost it all like every penny but it was like a, just a great lesson in was that risk the, management? Um, the dot com bubble bursting? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I just kept doubling down and buying calls and high vol theta. It was like, yeah. I think a light went off in my head. I was like, someone's making money at this shit. It's just not me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you basically at this point have the the best I think background I've ever heard for somebody to go to Wall Street. And <laughs> uh, and uh, I think UBS is where you started. When were you? Were you trading um, currencies there as well? As that's right. Uh, so I, I did an internship at Citigroup when I was at university, and then um, I ended up going to UBS to work on their FX options desk. And I kind of that desk back then was dominated by guys who'd come out of the old O'Connor prop trading business. Okay. So super interesting business. O'Connor was taken over by Swiss Bank in the early 90s, I think, and then SBC and UBS merged. And the guys who'd been O'Connor had kind of reverse taken over the firm, basically, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I joined in that context. So okay. they and were what you're like doing amazing. There, um, just for people who might not know, like what you're doing is... You're trading currency pairs, basically, right? Um, well, I was trading uh, options on currency oh, pairs. Okay, but and then, but like companies, like international corporations, need this because they need to um, change, like they need to pay in, in um, local currencies, right? A lot of times, or and then there's other places like the World Bank that's uh, giving out loans in lots of different currencies, and so they need to have a big portfolio. Those are the sort of main people who are in the uh, currency market just for people to, so they can get a sense of it yeah so it's like you know obviously corporate hedging and stuff which you just described so big companies that have costs in dollars but revenue and euros you know they need to hedge um they'll use derivatives to do that mm-hmm. then you've got um more real money, we would have called it. So like pension funds and insurance funds and things like that. They, they'll have a similar kind of exposure profile. So maybe they, are they doing that just to earn, they want to earn some, in, uh, they're investing in it basically, or? Yeah, well, no, it might be those real money funds. They might invest, they might speculate, but you know, they have genuine hedging needs as well. So they might have uh, a US pension fund might invest in Japanese equities, but they don't oh, okay. want yen risk so they hedge the dollar yen uh, okay. stuff and then you've got hedge funds where you know typically it's just pure hardcore speculation right and then the banks themselves at that time were huge risk takers so we'd run really large positions on our books just as market makers yeah and th- this is what's so awesome about you because i've often heard a lot of people say that crypto trading is very much like fx trading was back in the day uh that that and I, so I'd love to hear your take on that. Um, I think FX, it's a global market. The regulations are a bit murky, I, I would say, uh, certainly mm-hmm. compared to equities or um, corporate bonds. And yeah. I just, you know, it, it's, it's often said it was like a wild west, which you hear about crypto all the time. Um, was that kind of your experience with it? 
Um, yeah, I think that's probably fair. I sort of, um, I was sort of lucky in a way, right? Because I think I caught the last of that era where you could be a market maker in a bank and take significant risk. And so um, I grew up around really solid risk managers, people who really understood what it meant to take risk and trade and punt. And so um, an old boss of mine, he refers to me as a calculated cowboy. He says, you know, he said, you calculate things and you look at the odds, but you don't need to know everything. Like you're prepared to make a jump if you have to. And so my career after FX, uh, you know, I made a sort of calculated cowboy move into precious metals and metals trading generally, which back then was more of a Wild West than probably FX was. And then, you know, subsequently, obviously, I've ended up in crypto. I like those markets where it's a bit mm -hmm. less developed. Yeah. Were you doing spot trading in the metals markets or were you using derivatives and stuff like that? Or So I've always been an options trader. Like, that's my jam, really. Um, but the, the real thing for me is probably building technologies around trading and building businesses. So I ended up running businesses where I had spot guys working for me, but I wasn't the guy doing spot. I'd come in and like help build the architecture and work out how we were going to go to market and stuff like that. But I wasn't trading it myself per se. Okay. While at UBS, um, did you, I'm curious from being inside one of the biggest banks um, on the street, did you see the financial crisis coming? Was that something that touched you or what was that like uh, going through that in, inside of UBS? Yeah, it was, it was super crazy, to be honest, um, because people think of 2008 and Lehman going down, but the, you know, for us, it was sort of an 18-month process where Best Earns went down. You had all these problems in 07, and then you had the huge events of 08. And were you guys, um, were there the two hedge funds that failed in 2007, were those affiliated with UBS? Uh, no, they were affiliated with Best Earns. Oh, okay. So they were part of what took Best Earns down and then the, the acquisition okay. by JP Morgan. Yeah. But the, the I mean, that UBS really had problems as well. That was the first big well. warning, right? That was the first warning if people were paying attention at that point. I yeah. Think. Yeah. So it was, it was funny because, um, our business lost a decent amount of money in 07. And I think I learned personally a lot of lessons and I, I moved to metals trading in 08 and we made a lot of cash. But the, the interesting thing was, you know, I was at work and things were going crazy and we were making money and stuff's happening and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you'd leave the office and normal people were just going about their business. And, you know, we'd seen this coming for months and, you know, it was like, it's the end of the world. And, you know, it was a good lesson in humility because you go and see everyone else and they'd just be like, now, nah, you know, life carries on. This is all normal. Who cares? Bunch yeah. of Wall Street guys losing money. Nah. Yeah. I, I had a similar kind of bubble. I was at Bloomberg News. And so, you know, we were, uh, you know, we had some pretty good reporters um, on the Bond team that were pretty much screaming, you know, that something bad was really bad was going to happen. <laughs> right. um, and then you'd walk around. Yeah. Like you'd go outside in New York and, and everybody, I mean, up till the crash, people might forget 
like there was money like flowing in the streets, you know, everybody was, was filthy rich or it seemed like they were on paper, you know, everybody was doing very well. Um, and then, you know, uh, yeah. And then everything, and then the floor just kind of fell out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's fascinating. And, um, then you go to metals after that and it's, it's still, um, you know, lightly regulated to say, uh, I think comparatively to other asset classes, uh, when did crypto kind of come across your radar? Um, so I think very early initially. So I think before or around the time of Mount Cox. Okay. 2013 ish. Uh, so 2013 ish. I think, yeah. you know, it took, where did it go to price? Was like $50, $100? I can't remember. And then it crashed to like one. Yeah. I think it was, yeah, I think it was around 100 or 150, something like that. Yeah, I think it went to like $100 of Bitcoin and then it crashed like $1. And my friend Bim, I would never forget when we were together, and he said, dude, you know what? I think we should put 10K each into Bitcoin. Huh. And it was about $1, $2. He's like, what's the worst thing that could happen? I'm like, dude, I could lose $10,000. This is really stupid. I'm not going to do that. And uh, that was the first time it really struck me as a proper thing. And So did you? Did you guys do it? No. no. I told him not okay. to. I convinced him not to. Oh, God. Is yeah. he still your friend? <laughs> yeah, he is. I mean, he's quite good about it. I brought this up with him maybe three months ago. And he just laughed. He's like, dude, I know exactly what would have happened. It would have Everybody, gone from $1 to $2 yeah. and I would have sold it. Yeah, yeah. Everybody I talk to in crypto has a story like this. It's really, really funny. Um, they've either lost, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, had the chance and just said, no, forget it. It's just, it's not, it's nothing there. Um, I mean, it was so complicated to set up wallets then and the like trading venues were so untrustworthy. I think even if we'd have bought it, candidly i probably would have lost it by now you probably would have left it on mount gox right and and yeah or like yeah something something would have happened where i would have just lost it which kind of tells you how difficult this space has been for a long time um and then i sort of floated in and out of it for a while and I, i didn't really get seriously interested until about 2017 i started doing a lot of bitmax cash and carry um because when they came out you know that i was just thinking of them because uh i was thinking of you know the cftc is suing uh binance uh or wait is it over their yeah over the derivatives um Mm -hmm. and and that was the same thing that they went after bitmax for and arthur hayes um so that were you attracted to them because of the derivative side of what they were doing um yeah because you could do spot perp arbitrage so you could buy bitcoin and sell bitcoin on bitmax uh and earn like 60 70 percent yields no way um yeah Jeez. and if you did it, it on altcoins you oh, could God. get north of 80 percent. it was crazy that's just from pricing um differences like irregular like you're are you selling in different markets there you're arbing so, so you are you familiar with how perpetual products uh, work in crypto no no not not enough to probably okay. follow we'll, along we'll do a like 20 second primer so perpetual futures aren't like um normal futures where you have a set expiry date mm-hmm. they roll every day and the roll cost um is determined by how much the difference the basis is between the spot and the perpetual price 
So i.e. if perpetuals price 1% over the spot price, uh, longs have to place shorts 1% every day. And that's for the sake of like facilitating their leverage. Does that make sense? Yeah. At this time, you could just buy spot and sell the perpetual future and make an annualized like ah. 60, 70% plus. Okay. Yeah, I get that. And it was, it was such a poorly understood trick. It's like no one was doing it. I went around and tried to raise money to do it. You could just, I, everyone thought crypto was a scam. It was like the easiest money going. So I was just doing it PA. Okay. And so that now, and then the ICO era was about to start and the prices were about to go to a record. And then another crypto winter set in. But were mm-hmm. you in it? Like for good by that point? No, so it's a bit weird. I was working at a small commodities hedge fund. Um, and that firm's doing quite well now, but at the time we were like raising money and you know, it's kind of probably the worst time ever to be running a commodities hedge fund was the five years that I was at a commodities hedge fund. <laughs> and um I desperately wanted to do it within the company. But the guy that owned the company, not unfairly, he wanted to sort of stay focused on commodities and we looked at it and then crypto collapsed by the time we even thought about maybe doing something. And then it was like, well, maybe there's no opportunity here. So it just sort of died on the vine. Yeah. And then 2020 happened, you know, everyone got locked in a house. I started looking at crypto again. I started to get interested when DeFi summer blew up. And early 2021 um i just made the choice to jump i just wanted to be in a more kind of exciting space and so um i took a job at a company that i did for a little bit um but i wasn't that keen on what i was doing there and then um jumped and uh started working on the idea that eventually would become vertex and did you um once you got into it and were trading it did it did it remind you more of the old FX trading you did, or more of the metals side? Like, what what would you say the best parallel would be? It's sort of like a weird hybrid of the two, to be honest. Um, you know, obviously, it's got components of uh, currency because it's just loads of pairs and the yeah. frequency of the trading and everything pretty similar. Um, I think the metals bit is helpful because actually metals is normally is kind of fungible and traded electronically and everything else, but there is a physical component to it. And although people don't think of crypto as being physical because it's a bearer asset, there is actually sort of a physical component. It's just like electronically physical, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if you've got one trading venue with Bitcoin and you've got another trading venue, you don't have the Bitcoin. It's not a true arbitrage unless you can get the coins from one place to another. It's that kind of thing, you know, like thinking about those wrinkles in the market. Um, the metals experience is quite helpful. Yeah. Um, and then, so let's take a little slight detour here um, because I, I was told that you did stand-up comedy in London and that hasn't come up yet. So when, uh, <laughs> where have you been fitting in uh, doing stand-up comedy and how did you get into that? So to be honest, I haven't done stand-up for a little while. Um, it's kind of a weird one. I, uh, 
I got divorced um, in like, I guess my ex and I separated in maybe like 2016, 2015, that sort of time. Okay. And um, I started going out with the lady who is now my current wife. And um, she used to do pottery once a week. Mm -hmm. I know this sounds why pottery connects stand up, but it fascinated me that she had a kind of creative hobby. Yeah. Uh Okay. So I realized like my hobbies had always been like sport or movies or reading. And I'd I'd always been like a passive consumer or um, playing games or whatever. I had never like created anything. Okay. And so I sat down and had to think about things and I like writing and I didn't really want to write a book or anything like that. And so I started to think about stand-up, and so I set myself a challenge. I said, okay, go and do 10 gigs, see how you like it. Can't give up before you've done 10. Just do 10 shitty open mics, see what happens. (laughs) And uh, I got hooked, and I did it, you know, on and off pretty seriously for about five years. I used to play a lot of clubs and MC. What what were you using for material? Was it, like, finance stuff, or was it, like, you know, your your life (laughs) dating stuff, or...? Yeah, so weirdly, unless you're in finance, it's not funny. So yeah. normal people say, don't care. That's a really tough one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so ten um, minutes on financial market structure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I used to do a lot of like storytelling about my life, quite personal stuff, you know. Um, so yeah, I did a lot of that. Uh, I did it for quite a long time. It's a, it a really lovely thing to do, and you know, I think even if you have no ambitions to be a stand-up comedian, if you're someone who struggles with public speaking, stand-up's a great thing to force yourself to do because it just teaches you so much. Yeah, and that's yeah, that takes a lot of balls to do stand-up. I mean, of all the things that you could uh, pick for a hobby, that's that's a real um, real public one. Um, and I noticed on your, your Twitter feed, you've got Mr. T on there uh, reading yeah. a book about Mr. T. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that a... Is he a, an inspiration for you, or is that just something that makes you laugh? Hundred percent, child of the eighties. I grew up watching the A team. Of course. Um, obviously, I am also a Mister T, which amuses me to therefore have Mister uh, the actual Mister T on my background. Got you, of course. Yeah, top of top. It's a subtle visual joke. Yeah. Got it. Um, yeah. How many? I I loved the A team, and I I loved how pretty much every episode they had to knock Mister T out uh, when they had to get on an <laughs> yeah. airplane. And then, yeah, the classic like, one. The classic one is the one where they drug the milk, yeah. and he says, "Oh, milk! I like milk." <laughs> <laughs> he like passes out. I use yeah. that every time my wife drinks milk. <laughs> I use that live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, how many times have they remade that van? And then, you know, like taking it back oh, apart. It's just, yeah, what a show. That's, that's my dream car. My inner four-year-old <laughs> is still hankering for that van. I've seen vans like that around here in LA, so they're they're out there. People are uh, representing. Um, all right, cool. So, like, getting back to the crypto stuff, um, let's like let's maybe just like define some terms as we continue the conversation because I think some of this gets a little technical for for folks. So, um, we you know we've been talking about some like exchanges and stuff and. Uh, something, um, let's say, like Binance or Coinbase is a centralized exchange, right? Because they that's where the trading happens. You go to Coinbase or Binance and it's they are the intermediary there um, and they're matching buyers and sellers. 
Now, another option that's come out in the last several years is decentralized exchanges or DEXs, where it's basically uh, usually a smart contract is in the middle and it's a peer-to-peer trade where you're you're trading a pair of like Bitcoin to Ether or something like that. And there's no there's no centralization. There's no, um, you know, there, there could be no censorship there, for example, or, you know, other things. So that that's sort of the stage. And then, so you've mentioned uh, Vertex before, and yep. that, is, that is a decentralized exchange. Um, so can you tell me where, when did you start realizing that you wanted to build this and what was the, um, what, what was the problem you were trying to solve? It's sort of a bit of a journey. So I, I started to get really, really interested in DeFi um, in 2020. As I said, DeFi summer happened. I'd been involved on and off in crypto, but always, to be honest, more from a trading standpoint, I never really engaged that much with the actual underlying technology. Mm-hmm. I'd always just viewed it as another number that was irrational that I could do card counting on, right? Yeah, And because it was so volatile, there was lots of opportunities. And so I'd only ever interacted with centralized exchanges. Um, so, you know, BitMEX I mentioned, you know, Binance, uh, Deribit, whatever. And so then I started working in it, or just before I started working at it, I started looking a little bit more at DeFi, which I'd heard about smart contracts and the promise of Ethereum, but it was all very theoretical. No one had actually shown me a use case where you could actually do something. Hmm. And then suddenly all these apps started popping up and you know, you could get a wallet, you could put money on the wallet, and then you could do things. And then I just became a bit obsessed. Not with any outlet, just because I, I mentioned I, I love games. I was like, oh man, this is like a game and I don't know all the rules. Like, <laughs> amazing i gotta learn the rules yeah but i was like i gotta learn the rules of this game because this is a new game and this is fun and that's when to be honest i wasn't even thinking about money i was just thinking this is fun Uh um and so i got obsessive like my wife lost me for a number of months into just studying things and looking at you know i became obsessed with how the amms work how does borrowing lending work on chain how people were interacting across bridges, all this sort of stuff. And so if it was a game, what was the what was your goal if it wasn't money? You were just you just wanted to kind of figure it out and just feel like you had a mastery of it? Yeah, I just I just thought it was fun. Like all these people were coming up with new stuff and doing it and sort of no permission, no like real plan. You know, it was very chaotic. If you look at the early sort of implementations of things and how they worked and how Curve was working versus how Uniswap worked versus how UniV3 worked, you know, it was all just like, oh, cool, something new. Let's check it out. Let's play around with it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's that's something that's always struck me in crypto is you get to watch the the evolution in real time and people are putting real money into these things and sometimes they blow up and sometimes they work really well. Whereas I feel like in traditional finance, you know, there are so many rules and regulations and people have, you know, there's so many boxes to check. I think you kind of never really see that. And I think that's one reason why there's, you know, relatively slow pace of innovation in the traditional financial world compared to, you know, the explosions that happen every couple of years in DeFi. Um, 100%. And, you know, like, 
there's far less to innovate on where, you know, DeFi was just a whole new thing altogether. So it's just open field. Yeah. How does uh, Vertex come into this? Right. So I started working at a small exchange called Crosstown. I was running their uh, trading effort. And once I was in the inside and we were doing some investing, I, I just kind of looked at things and, you know, they're running their business. I left for various reasons I won't go into, but I just left. And I had a real sense of I wanted to do something in the DeFi space. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, uh, Terra was very big. Yep. And so the lending protocol, basically. Uh, well, yeah, pe- you know, people were investing in Anchor and making twenty percent, and they had this decentralized stablecoin UST, and that thing had huge uh, adoption through the second half of twenty twenty one. But what most people didn't know was that there was also like some other stuff going on. So anyway, I had a plan for doing this like multi currency thing on Terra, right? So taking some of my FX experience and building like a multi currency trading platform. Um, and so I met my co-founder and we were working on it and we raised some money. Uh, and then in the meantime, Terra blew up. Yeah. So in May, 2022 now, um, so not even a year ago, which feels crazy. Um, this thing blew up. We had money in the bank. We had a team. We'd been working on this thing. We were, we were about to launch, uh, the first version of the product. And suddenly we didn't have a home for it. And our reason for existing was very well aligned with Terra. And so we kind of sat down and we looked at things and we said, well, look, we've designed this really capital efficient, uh, you know, cross margin, cross collateralized thing for currency trading. This would be really good for crypto. Mm -hmm. And so we took a look around and decided that we were just going to refocus our efforts on just pure crypto to crypto trading um, and start building on Arbitrum. Uh, and, you know, it's very interesting for doing that. Yeah. It, was the idea always for it to be decentralized or did some of the centralized blowups push you in that direction? No, the idea was always that it'd be decentralized. But, it, you know, you got to remember at this point, none of the centralized blowups had actually happened. So in May 2022, Terra blew up. And our view was that, you know, this was like a huge credit crisis for crypto. There'd been a destruction of like 60 to $80 billion worth of value. Yeah. And that that was meaningful equity loss within the ecosystem. And we didn't know where it would pop up, but we were pretty adamant that there were going to be problems. And we felt that the most likely problems would probably be from um, centralized entities. I mean, they, they were far larger than the decentralized ones anyway. And there was already kind of industry knowledge that some people weren't acting as properly as maybe they should have been. And so then all the things that unfolded around you know, three ace. So yeah, three arrows uh, capital goes down. Yeah. A lot of the crypto credit um, platforms are r- really hurting. Right, exactly. BlockFi, you know, obviously Genesis yeah. have suffered. Uh, and then FTX, FTX was to come later. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So all these things that happened were, were later, but and we didn't know. You know, if you'd have said to me, FTX is going to go down, of course we didn't know that. Like, yeah. no clue. But we did have a feeling that there were going to be problems and that probably the tone was people were going to want to move to decentralized trading. How could we provide the best experience possible for people to do decentralized trading? Because, you know, you and I have been around the space for a while, but, you know, for new people, you know, a lot of DeFi was not very accessible. Yeah, you were saying even just a wallet, you know, is a lot for some people. And then you on top of that, like now you're going to go trade on a DEX and you make a mistake and, you know, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, um, and it, it doesn't feel good, right? Like a lot of yeah. the things about blockchain, Yeah, I don't know about you, but the first time I ever used, uh, you know, it was MetaMask, I was going to use their name, but, you know, you press the button and this isn't MetaMask's fault, but press the button and your number changes on your wallet and then you're looking for it yeah. to turn up somewhere yeah. else. Yeah, And it takes forever and you go, oh man, I just sent 10 grand. Yeah. <laughs> into a computer and it's gone no it still terrifies me and i always send like a dollar or something you know tiny, right. just to make sure yeah. that i'm not screwing it up and uh yeah it, i don't know why but the first time i went big and then i absolutely pooed myself i was like <laughs> oh jeez, what an idiot <laughs> <laughs> yeah so let's um so let's talk here now about but you're you at vertex you're taking a different approach at least as far it's not as common i would say and that is um the way that you're bringing liquidity to vertex is um is a little bit different so in a in another in another dex like uniswap right they um you mentioned it before there's automatic market makers so amms and those are basically pools right of cryptocurrencies that like in a pair and so you've got people who are dedicating or pledging their crypto to that pool so that as the buying and selling happens there's enough of it and it's it's kind of like algorithmically um i think proportioned uh, as in terms of like as market conditions change right but it's yeah, all I mean, it's all programmed yeah. right yeah i mean it's it's done by algorithm like very simply basically you say i don't care whether i have tether or ethereum i just chuck it in this pool and the algorithm does its thing and if i ever pull it out i've got a changed amount of ethereum and tether and i would have earned some fees on it as well yeah so if you're staking you get a yield and if you're a trader you've got some liquidity to trade against that's it basically yeah yeah and that's the incentive there is the yield yeah but at vertex you want to have an order book and that is different because that's where you've got market makers who are putting in dedicated prices right on both sides of the buy and the sell. And that's, that's the way that like the New York Mercantile Exchange works or the New York Stock Exchange, you know, those are, those are central limit order books. Um, and are you, so are you thinking of a central limit order book or is that, I don't know if there's a difference actually, but like how, and how is that going to work? Because in the, in the world like of the New York Mercantile Exchange, there are these things called um, uh, the futures brokers, basically FCMs, and they 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 are there to um, provide access to trading, but then also to be you know making markets and making sure that you can buy and sell on those markets um, you know all, all the time and with a lot of liquidity. So, is are you taking that sort of into the DeFi world, or how how are you guys thinking about that? 
Yeah, so um, the reason order books are typically not used in DeFi is because they're very expensive to run. When you do an operation on chain, you have to pay gas. So anything that you send in an order, a withdrawal deposit, you pay this tiny amount of money to pay for the computing power to get that done, right? Mm -hmm. And so order books where you've got, as you said, market makers sending hundreds of thousands, millions of quotes a day to keep liquidity on the order book, um, that becomes very expensive for all those tiny operations. And so what we've done is we've kind of separated out the order book and the book of record. So blockchains are really good for things like recording trades. I, you know, you, Matt, sell to me some amount of ETH at this price and it's indivisible and we do the transfer of value on chain and that's really good use of blockchain. An order book is a terrible use of blockchain, right? Lots of low value transactions that ultimately get canceled and don't mean anything. Right, yeah, I love that. I hadn't thought about it in that way because, yeah, messaging is often, like you said, there can be hundreds of millions of messages going back and forth, right, in a given day on these markets. Um, 100%. Messaging is a great example, yeah. Yeah. And then, so then the light bulb went off for me. Is that why you're on the L2? You're on a layer two because now, like, you can basically what what a layer two allows you to do is basically open a set of transactions and do a whole bunch of them that don't go on chain. And then when you close out of that set of transactions, the the history of those will be then recorded on the blockchain, on the underlying L1. Is that is that what's going on here? Kind of partly. So um, our book of record and settlement is Arbitrum. And ultimately, Arbitrum transactions uh, have the security of Ethereum, but with more scalability. So when a trade matches, we send it to Arbitrum and then ultimately goes to Ethereum. Actually, we maintain our sequencer. So you could sort of think of it as like an L3, if you like, on top of Arbitrum. So we have our own technology where orders come in and we do those for zero gas. It's like turtles, uh, turtles on turtles on turtles all the way down. <laughs> that's, that's very much what it is, yeah. And then that has a number of advantages for us because it allows us to fast forward the chain. So we can be super fast, which means we can interact with high-frequency trading firms. But our end users get the um, security and self-custody of being on chain because everything comes signed by them from their wallet. You don't need to understand all the crypto stuff, but basically, magically, it's way more secure than doing it with a centralized exchange or entity. And so they send it off, you trade there, and then it clears onto chain and you can see what happened with your assets and you always know that you know we haven't taken your assets anywhere or done anything with them. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's, that's cool because... I've been following this for a while, and I remember when um, the Australian Stock Exchange was, was, you know, they went big and and wanted to change part of their um, backend infrastructure onto a blockchain. But and and they always made the point like this is not the trading. We're not talking about the buying and selling because that's too it's too much for a blockchain to handle. And that's you know you'd hear that about all sorts of other markets. Um, but now it seems like 
things are advancing to the point where that maybe that's not longer no longer the case. I think that's right. Yeah. So like, um, our technology is more. Yeah, it's complex, but yes, I think we're going to a world where the next big use case for blockchain will be these kind of value transfers for large institutions like Australian Stock Exchange. You know, uh, obviously I come from a currency background. Currencies are just dying for blockchain implementation, but it needs buy-in from all the major banks. Yeah. Um, do you expect that to happen? I guess I've always thought if, if they're going to save money or make money, they'll do it. But then there's also, it's very hard, a very few projects on Wall Street succeed where you need a coalition of a bunch of different banks because they all have different, you know, uh, needs and wants in the market. Yeah. So I think actually there are already people building solution. I think it's probably closer than it feels. You, you're right. It's the... I actually think the problem's not the technology now. It's more to do with having the right person who can go and build that coalition. Hmm. I mean, there's a couple of banks that are leading in this, like not maybe this, but JP Morgan is, you know, they've got their own internal crypto coin. Um, they're doing, using it as the, as the dollar leg for repo trades. Um, and they're doing billions of dollars in those um, pretty much every day. Uh, and then, so it, yeah, I think, but then, you know, others have, I don't know if it's still the case, but I remember B of A just seemed like woefully behind in terms of anything in the crypto world. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. Uh, and I haven't really touched on this, but it, but it's been sort of in the background of a lot of what we discussed is that these centralized failures have affected the industry so much and people get their assets caught up in these centralized failures because they're holding them on exchange, which First of all, as I've tried to tell everybody for years, never do that. Like you don't leave your assets on the exchange, <laughs> get a wallet and keep it on chain. Otherwise you're going to get, you know, they're going to get lost or they're going to get hacked or something's going to happen. But as so now, but with Vertex, it, it, this is the case, right? You're, you're doing everything like you mentioned out of your own wallet. So you're in control of it all the time. There's, you know, it's basically up to you to keep it safe. You don't have to worry about some third party. That's exactly right. So all of our trading is non-custodial. You deposit uh, funds into our smart contracts. It sits on chain. You can check that in public ledger and then withdraw it at your pleasure. So um, it's just a totally different setup. Yes, it's hard to analogize it to a centralized venue. You know, everyone's had that experience you discussed, but no one really buys into self-custody until they have a negative experience i think the yeah. good thing for us is lots of people had a negative experience last year and while that's bad for the industry i think overall it's good for industry health because ultimately crypto is about self-custody that's the kind of unique thing about it and it took me a long time to understand that but i think it's super important for people to yeah. understand you know thinking about that and all the turmoil and, and implosions and problems of the last year one one project has stayed pretty strong and that's tether uh which is kind of fascinating because leading up to this certainly over the years there's been a lot of questions about 
how Tether is running its business. There's, you know, they were investigated by the CFTC. Uh, I think the DOJ was in there. Um, but, you know, as all these other algorithmic stablecoins were crashing and crypto credit firms were crashing, Tether seemed to hold strong. Is that, does that strike you as weird? I think it does at first blush, but when you actually think about it, it sort of makes sense in a weird way. Like for various reasons, Tether's had to kind of cut itself off from the majority of the financial system. So, you know, they've had to protect themselves, protect where their assets sit, guard things from the external events, et cetera, et cetera. So what they've actually ended up doing is having something that's really hermetically sealed off. Hmm. So when all these problems happened, Tether ironically ended up being one of the most stable things out. Yeah, um, yeah. You see, like US dollar coin, right? Lost its peg. Yeah. Uh, Tether, Tether did not. Um, yeah. And I, this is just totally. I, I don't know if you know this, but or any, I'm just curious. I wonder, did, you know, because Tether has gone through periods where they don't have banking. So I wonder if they got lucky and don't have banking right now. <laughs> so there can't be like a mass outflow. I don't know. I'm just, that's just total, totally off the top of my head, but it did occur to me. I, b- I believe their banking is public. Yeah. They, they do have banking in the Caribbean. And yeah. They've um, shown where they're holding their treasuries and stuff as well. So they have banking. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, so where do you like, okay. Wh- Vertex is not live yet. Correct. Um, it's not live to the public, but it is live. So we have market makers putting rates on the order book currently. Uh, they're kind of testing the pipe. So um, in spite of the fact that we're all on chain and very crypto native, uh, the launch path for the exchange has been kind of a very TradFi one. <laughs> that probably refly- reflects my background as well as my teams. So we're all Are you doing everything you can to try to do what the regulators want is that what's going on like it's Um, as much as we can where we can engage with regulation positively we are obviously crypto is difficult in that sense because it's not always possible to engage positively with regulation because there isn't any but where there is we're trying to i meant more um actually we're trying to cross the T's and dot the I's and double check that everything works and then triple check that everything works. So make sure our servers work properly for um, market makers, make sure our sequencer does the right thing, make sure that the contracts are safe so that ultimately for users, it's the best, safest possible experience it can be rather than just rushing to market and doing something that may have some problems in the future. Okay. Um are you expecting to, are US customers going to be able to access it? Uh, it will be blocked to US IPs um, for kind of clear and obvious reasons. Yeah. What, and that's a shame, but what, what has been your experience with trying to engage with US regulators like the SEC? Um, we haven't uh, actively engaged ourselves, but. Uh, the regulatory landscape in the US, I think, is one of the most unclear um, places globally, unfortunately. Um, and so we've just kind of taken a view that you know, it's better to avoid potential problems than 
to just be reckless. So we're just trying to be as safe as possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really kind of baffling when you, we were just writing, you know, in a newsletter this week about, you know, you've got Binance getting sued by the CFTC and then you've got Coinbase getting a Wells notice from the SEC. And it's like, I think, you know, you could, it's probably fair to say Binance is probably playing pretty fast and loose with the rules. And then I think Coinbase is trying to do at least everything that they can to, to um, make sure that, that they're doing, you know, following the regulations and meeting with the SEC. You know, they said they did it more than 30 times. They also went through obviously an IPO process uh, in 2021. So the SEC had, uh, you know, as, as best a look as they could ever get um, on all the operations inside but they're both, you know, so you've got kind of this one loose and fast exchange and one that's trying to do things right. And they're both getting nailed by regulators. So it seems like it's damned if you do, damned if you don't right now, at least in the United States. And it's a real shame because I think, you know, like you, like you guys, you're not, you're not going to touch it because of that. And I think, you know, I, I guess that's kind of seems like that's sort of the outcome that regulators want. But for somebody who wants these systems to work, it's a real shame. I think it's tough because, uh, unfortunately, like regulation by enforcement means that it's very hard for projects to get clarity. So um, I think we'd welcome a clearer regulatory landscape in the US, but uh, for now, that's not the situation that we're living with. Yeah. And do you guys have a, a date where you're hoping to go? Um, uh, off of the sort of uh, internal testing and go go public yeah so um we've got a trading competition for um select group of people we're going to launch in the next couple of weeks um that's going to happen around 10th of april last a week that's kind of our last period of intensive testing and then after that we'll look to launch in the couple of weeks after that so um, it should be that we have product to market that users can log in on our front end and start trading um, very early May, late April. Okay. All right. You heard it here first, guys. Get your VPNs ready. No, <laughs> just, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Matt, you're going to give me heart palpitations. Please. Please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I joke. I kid. Um, well, Darius, thanks so much for, for spending all your time with us and, and the fascinating backstory. Um, I love it. Why don't you let people know where they can find you and, and uh, if they want to learn more about Vertex, how to do that as well. Yeah, that'd be great. So I'd love people to follow us on Twitter. We're at Vertex underscore protocol um, or vertexprotocol.com. Um, we've got a testnet going um, and you'll be able to log into mainnet very soon. If you want to follow me, it's uh, Darius Tabai uh, on Twitter. Um, but I would say that my account is fairly dull, but you're welcome to follow me and I'm sure it will liven up soon. As soon as we get to launch, I'll have plenty to talk about. Oh, yeah. So um, yeah, but that, those are the best places. And if you really want to get into the weeds with us, get on Discord, engage with the community. We've got a great team of ambassadors and people that just love getting into our dogs and talking about stuff so there's plenty to learn yeah all right that's great and uh yeah best of luck with vertex and i hope everything goes smoothly for the launch uh, just in a couple weeks here in a month or so thanks matt i really appreciate it thanks for having me on that's it for this episode 
Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart, with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes.